hope it's okay if I come down here, feel a little more closer, more intimate um, with you. If you have your Bibles, if you can turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, we continue through this series on Sunday night, this book, to the church at Colossae. Paul, uh, Sean, not Paul, Sean's been leading us uh, through uh, this book. Dealt with the first, uh, most of the first chapter, and last week he really hammered this concept that Christ is preeminent. That is the title of this series: that He is supreme, that He is over all things. Uh, and that's a great on ramp uh, to this passage today that we'll be looking at, starting in verse twenty-four, going to chapter two, verse one. That the Christ is preeminent over all things, including our very stories. So let's look at God's word tonight. This is Colossians chapter one, verse twenty-four. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations by now, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, this is, in, this is indeed the, this is the day you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And as we come to the close of this day, as the sun has set, I pray that the true sun would rise in our hearts and rise in this place, that we would take hold of him by faith. We would see how beautiful and wonderful how majestic and powerful he is, that you would call us as a, as a community unto him, that we might worship him, that we might understand him, that we might live for him all the days of our life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So for about nine years now, uh, the most well-attended Sunday school classes I have is uh, the classes I call the Stories of Rescue. And what's ironic about these classes is that uh, I don't lead them. I'm not teaching. But they're the most well-attended classes I have. And they're well-attended. It's because the stories of rescue are all about people in our community being able to stand before the community and tell God, or tell uh, God's people what he has been doing in their lives. It's a time where God's people come together. And individuals or couples open up the, the window of their hearts and they tell their stories, the stories of pain and joys, stories of celebration, stories of heartache, 
They're most likely a tears that come out of people's eyes as people tell their stories. And why is it powerful? Because it's a window into who they are. It's a window into their very life that this community gets to experience. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. If you've ever had the opportunity to tell your story, a story where you open up your heart, you open up the window of who you are, and you let people in. You let them hear what God has been doing from the very beginning of your life and until now. Well, when we come to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, that's what Paul is doing. He's opening up a window of his heart to communicate to this church that he deeply loves about who he is, what he has been through, what he longs for. Paul really is sharing his story here so as to connect to this church. We know that that Paul has never visited this church, that Paul didn't plant this church, but he deeply loves this church and wants deeply to be in relationship with him. And so how does he do it? He opens up his heart and tells them about who he is and what he's been through and how great Jesus is to him. And all it does is it forges an intimate relationship with this church. There are three things I want to draw out of this passage for us tonight. I want us to see Paul's suffering. Paul talks about his suffering here. I want us to see Paul's purpose. I want to see Paul's struggle. Those are my three points tonight that I'm going to work through in this passage. So let's first look at Paul's suffering. Verses 24 through 27. Verse 24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul here is opening up the window of his heart and he starts sharing about his sufferings, real legitimate pains in his life. He refers to them as my sufferings. Now we know that Paul at this point in his his life is in house arrest. He's most likely in Rome. Chapter 4, verse 18 tells us that, please remember my chains. He's under house arrest. He's being watched by Roman guards. And he's chained up in this little room, this little apartment. We don't know how long he's been there. History tells us that he's there for two years. But we don't know how long he's been there when he writes this letter. But just imagine for me, being locked up in a little room, chained and having a guard watch over you for two years. What would that be like? Now, we don't know what exactly his imprisonment and house arrest was like, but the fact that he mentions, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions makes us think these sufferings are something pertaining to his body. Maybe he's being beaten. Maybe he's being starved. We know that he's in isolation. He feels this in his flesh. In his person, he's being afflicted there in Rome. And the reference to his pain and suffering, in reference to his pain and suffering, he says something very interesting. He says, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Does that strike you as odd or, or weird? Is Paul saying that Christ's suffering here on earth was insufficient? Is he saying that it was deficient? Is it lacking? Well, as you read the story of Scripture, we know that's not true. Jesus' suffering and his death is sufficient in every way for our salvation. 
Listen to what Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 through 27 says. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into, he- but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the, at the end of ages to put away sin by, by the sacrifice of himself. The writer of Hebrews is saying, listen. Yes, the high priest pictures the Messiah, the anointed one that's coming. But the anointed one that, come, that comes, Jesus Christ, is better. He's a better high priest. His sacrifice and his suffering is sufficient. He doesn't have to continue to enter into the Holy of Holies. He doesn't have to continue to suffer and to be afflicted for our sins. Year in, year out. What Jesus did on the cross was sufficient. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says this, And by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ's suffering in life and death was completely sufficient to accomplish our salvation and make peace with God through the blood of his cross. So what does Paul mean when he's saying, um, uh, in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering? What I believe Paul's talking about here is the future suffering, the real suffering and the pain for those who follow Jesus. Followers will experience great affliction. 2 Timothy verse three twelve says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will experience pain and affliction. Jesus clearly says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. Jesus doesn't say, Take up your pillow and your sleeping bag. He doesn't say, Take your overnight sack. No, Jesus says, take up your cross, an instrument of pain and persecution and suffering. Paul tells the church at uh, Philippi, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What Paul is saying here is not that Christ lacks affliction or lacks suffering, but that in our following him there is a lack of suffering in the church that is to come. And he declares, and he desires to make that up. He desires to take it in on his life and to carry his weight, his load, to fill up the suffering that is to come for all those that follow Jesus in this world. He welcomes the suffering and the pain because he knows that in this suffering and in this pain and in this persecution, the gospel goes forth. God's people are mature. The love of Jesus is manifested abroad the suffering of God's people. Not only does he say something interesting about his suffering, but he also says something surprising. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? How in the world can Paul say, I rejoice in my suffering, in my pain? I have a hard time rejoicing in my blessings. But Paul is saying here, I rejoice in my suffering. How is that the case? How is that possible that anybody can say that, much less Paul? It's because Paul loves the church more than he loves his very life. 
He loves the local church. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, he says, in reference to the church at Colossae. And for the sake of the body of Christ, this beautiful image of the church abroad, Paul is saying, for the sake of the church, I will suffer because I love her. Something has happened to Paul that has caused him to love something more than his very self. And that something is is that he met with Jesus. He came face to face with the Savior of the world, the King, the resurrected King, on that road to Damascus, on his way to arrest Christians. He hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul comes face to face with a resurrected Lord. And it changes him. And in meeting Jesus on that road, he goes from a man who delights in persecuting the church to a man who rejoices in being persecuted for the church. When we meet Jesus, when we come face to face with Jesus, things change. Our lives change. Hear him say, in my suffering, in my pain, it is finished. I have made peace with you through the blood of the cross. Jesus does not say, I am finished. He says, it is finished. The work that I came to accomplish through my very life is finished. It is accomplished. I have made peace with God's people and God himself through the blood of my cross. And when we capture a vision of this powerful grace... In Jesus Christ, our sufferings, our everyday sufferings, shrink in the light of God's glorious promise for us. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us in His almighty power and grace. When we come face to face with Jesus Christ, when we meet Him, In his word, our lives are turned upside down. This is the only way that anybody can rejoice in the pain and persecution and suffering as we follow Jesus. It's the only way. Which leads me to my second point, which is Paul's purpose. Look at verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. Paul is opening up that window again of his heart. To express to the church of Colossae that God has given him a purpose. And that purpose is to make the word of God fully known. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to make the word of God fully known? Well he goes on to clarify that. In verse 26 and following. It's uncovering, it's revealing the mystery that's been hidden for generations now being revealed to the Gentiles through the ministry of Paul, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. To make the word of God fully known is to present Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world because all of God's word points to him. And not just that, that he dwells in his people, not just beside us, not just with us, but in us. And that gives us a guarantee for the hope that is to come. This is Paul's purpose. This is why God through his calling and stewardship, made Paul a minister of the gospel. 
an apostle of Christ to unpack, reveal, uncover, proclaim the glorious mystery of God. And what is the result of this purpose? What is the result of of Paul proclaiming Christ in us? Is to have our souls anchored in the promise of the future so that our lives are buoyed in the present. Hope, the hope of glory. Paul's very purpose is proclaiming Jesus to a sad and broken and unjust and wicked world where suffering is real, where pain is real. But there is hope, hope in Christ. And our hope is centered on Jesus coming back. The glory, the hope of glory. The reality that the weight of pain and darkness and sadness and brokenness and injustice and sin will be crushed under the weight of Christ's glory as he returns. That is our hope. That is what our faith is anchored in. That one day, not something, but a person will invade this world and the very weight of his presence will crush, will pulverize, will squeeze out the darkness, the pain, and the suffering, and the sadness of this world. That is our hope. That is Paul's purpose, is to proclaim that to everyone he comes in contact with. And how does Paul seek to execute that, that purpose? Well, he teaches us. Verse 28, Him we proclaim, that is Christ, in us, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, how do I execute this purpose? Is I warn and I teach. That word there for warn means to admonish, to inform people that they are wrong, to reprimand them, to confront them with the truth. And that word there to teach means to instruct in their faith. This is what we might call discipleship or shepherding. Being in relationship with others so that we can admonish and teach them all by the word of God. Some of you notice the title of my sermon. You're familiar with it. It is a quote out of a movie called Office Space. If you haven't seen it, it's kind of a cult classic. A movie about a lot of things, but in a certain instance, there are these efficiency consultants that come into Inatech, which is a company, And they're trying to determine, okay, how do we downsize? How do we make this place smaller? Well, we're going to interview all the employees and figure out what they do. And they meet with this one guy, and they're asking him, so what what do you actually do here? And he starts going on and going on and telling them all these things. And as you watch it, you realize he really actually doesn't do anything. And one of these efficiency consults looks at him and says, what would you say you do here? You know, being a pastor is kind of weird. People really don't know what to do with you, actually. And sometimes it's very lonely. What would you say you do here? You just only work on Sundays, right? You know, you, all you have is a pencil and a fork in your hand, and that's all you do. what would you say you do here? What do ministers do? 
What do I do? What was I called to do? What does Sean do? What does Robert? What does Ed? What does Jeremy? What does Brad? What do we do? We do this. We proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in doing that, we disciple people. We point them toward Jesus. We admonish them and train them. If you want to know what I'm called to do and Sean is called to do, this is what we do. This is our job. To proclaim Jesus and to admonish and to teach you. And this is a hard job. I'm not saying that to focus on our calling, but Paul clearly says it. Present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. This is not an easy kind of job. This is not an easy path to walk. To proclaim Jesus and to instruct people. To keep them on a right path. Why? Because people don't want to hear the truth. People struggle to hear the truth. People struggle to be instructed. I struggle to hear that. I don't want somebody to come in and tell me, hey, hey, brother, what you're doing is wrong. This is how you should do it. Our purpose, Paul's purpose here, is to proclaim Jesus and to warn everyone and teach everyone. Why? To present them mature in Christ so that they look more like Jesus through the ministry of Paul, through the ministry of this church. That everybody here, you look more like Jesus because you're present here. Because you know the ministers and they're faithful to their calling. This is our calling. Our calling is not to make people feel good, to tickle the ears. Our job is to make sure everybody gets home safely. Because your tendency and my tendency is to run our lives into a ditch. And we need a shepherd. We need people to teach us and to instruct us. And Paul here lays out that purpose, which moves on our third point, which is his struggle. Look at verse 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. The word there for struggle is the word for fighting. It is a competitive word. It's like fighting an opponent. Knowing the pain and accepting the pain of the ultimate goal. This word here for struggling is the, is, uh, the word, is where we get the word agony. Paul is saying, I struggle in pain, in agony for you, a great struggle for you. He welcomes this pain. Why? Because he knows the end result. For it's far better to present, it's far better in these, uh, it is, sorry, present circumstances in the struggle. It's far better to struggle now and look to the present of the future. So that these people, the church at Colossae, might look more like Jesus. And that's Paul's struggle. He's willing to sacrifice his very body and to suffer for them. Why? Why? Because he wants their hearts to be encouraged. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. And how are their hearts encouraged? By being knit together in love. And what's the ultimate result of being knit together in love? Is this full assurance of Christ, of knowing him, 
of a knowledge of him, of a wisdom of who he is. Paul is saying, I struggle in ministry. I toil in ministry because I love you. And I want nothing more than for you to look like Jesus. And I want your hearts to be encouraged in community. And in that community, to everybody to know the full assurance of Christ in them, the hope of glory. The end, the telos of Paul's ministry is what he struggles for here for the church of Colossae, that they might be encouraged in their hearts. You know, the stories of rescue I talked about at the very beginning, these were individual stories or couples. But you know, institutions also have stories. Stories of rescue. And I want you to think, for me, think with me for a second. 50, 100, 150 years from now, when somebody's writing the story of IPC, in those chapters where they're opening up the heart of this community, and they're telling those that are present, what was this place like? What would they write? What do you want them to write? I'll tell you what I want them to write. I want them to write that we were a church that proclaimed Jesus, that proclaimed Christ and Him crucified. That we were proclaimed that in Him is the hope of glory. And I want them to write about our community, our place, our family, that we're knitted together in love, serving and sacrificing for each other, never being satisfied until everybody in our midst comes to a full assurance that Jesus loves them, that Jesus is for them, that Jesus is real, and Jesus has promised them a hope of glory. And that all who are members of this place will be counted in the host that stream in to the glorious presence of God, singing praises to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Is that not what you want? Is that not what I want? That's exactly what we want. So what do we do? How do we get there? Well, we take up what Paul tells us here. We listen to the word of God preached. We look for Jesus to be proclaimed in all his glory. We long for that every Sunday morning and every Sunday night. We put our faith in him. We trust him. We long for that day that he returns and through his presence he crushes everything that is wrong with his world. And what is left is his glory and a table and a party and a feast for his people. We long for that and we pray for that. And you should expect your ministers to preach that week in and week out. We work on community. We stick together in love. We don't eat each other alive by gossip or slander. We think the best of each other. We long to be knitted together in sacrifice and service as a body. And we do that and we toil for that. And we work hard for that. And we struggle for that. Why? Because we want everybody in our midst to know that Jesus loves them. That Jesus is for them. And that they can be assured that the gospel is true. And they can cling to that gospel. And everybody in our midst, no matter what struggles, no matter what chapters in their lives that are hard, all, everybody gets home safely. 
together as a body. That is what I want people to write. I hope that's what you want people to write about. Let's pray. Lord God, we long to hear your word proclaimed. We long to more, know more and more of Jesus and him crucified. We long to have our hearts encouraged by his presence. And Father, I pray that the ministries of this church, the pulpit of this church, for days, for years, would always proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that this community would love each other, that would serve each other, would sacrifice each other, and would work, not just with their hands, with their very hearts. They would toil that everyone would understand the glories and the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we would all get home safely in your presence to that day where you return and you make all things new, that your very presence, the weight, the density of who you are crushes all the darkness around us, pulverizes it, and what is left is your glory and our presence with you forever. Father, that is what we want. Would you answer our prayer? Before we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.